Unleashed is uh, just uh, kind of a random name that we put on our uh, project to acquire a building in the Northwest. <laughs> Unleashed, you know, you, you could pick almost anything. Um, but part of the reason we picked that word was maybe just because of my own personal experience of walking through um, God-sized initiatives that uh, we as a church trying to move toward, um, it becomes much less about the destination and more about the journey. Uh, I don't don't remember telling anybody what design put behind that word, but the, the visual of the sort of the chain that's beginning to break is um, at least what I personally experience whenever I'm in the midst of something that I know that God is, is pressing before me or us, is there is this process of letting go of and being unchained from things that keep me from uh, moving forward and, and trusting him. Um, I always wonder if you, if you question my sincerity <laughs> when I say something like, it ain't about that building. It, it really is, is not. We sent out a survey this week. I hope that you got it. If you didn't, there's, there's got to be a way for you to get a hold of that. Just let us know that you didn't get it. Um, it's a very, very simple survey um, about this project, and it asks a couple questions, um, maybe the most significant of which is, um, where are you with regard to your readiness to commit to it, which has a lot to do with whether or not you have enough information or confidence in what, where we're going or what we're doing. Um, and I've gotten quite a few responses to that survey already. And as you might suspect, there's all sorts of and different levels of readiness <laughs> for that. Um, I haven't taken the survey myself, um, but I can tell you... Uh, my readiness, my personal readiness, vacillates just like anybody else's. <laughs> one, of the, one of the responses was, I don't think this is the right thing to do. And I was like, I hear that. I wake up in the middle of the night thinking, is this the right thing to do? You know, it's like, I, what, to be honest, we don't know. How, how would we know that? How do we know what is God's best future for us. And it just forces me again to come back to, it is not about that destination. All that we really know is that God has put an opportunity for us in the Northwest. It is a very good opportunity, the the best opportunity we have seen or had in 18 months. And we ought to go after it as passionately as we can, which is what we're doing. We're doing our level best to Go after the one opportunity that God has put in front of us, and in the process of doing so, hopefully we will mature and grow in character and hear his voice better through the process. And I don't know if pursuing it means we're going to get it. (laughs) We don't know that. We just know that God has put this out here. I I could personally vouch for the fact this is a wonderfully good opportunity. No opportunity is perfect, but we don't know if this is best. We just know what's, what God's put in front of us. And he's asked us, and not just me, but dozens of people that are surrounding this issue and this project, saying, it's worth going after. The 
the best part of it is the journey. It really is. It's always that. We have a great deal of confidence that we should try for it. <laughs> we have a great deal of humility in trying to project and understand what God thinks is best for us. We don't know. So uh, lean in. Go to the website. There's all sorts of questions and answers and ways that you can get more informed. And if that fails, just email me or text me. I would be glad to talk to you about your questions. They're all very good questions, very good thoughts, very good things. All the stuff that's coming through the survey. Okay. I want you to imagine for a second, you're, maybe this isn't going to be hard for some of you because you're in school, but for most of us, remember, you're, put yourself back in school, <laughs> high school or college or vocational school or whatever, some educational space. You're sitting at the desk. You just arrived in class. Maybe your spirits are up a little bit for some unknown reason, and the teacher says, all right, everybody take out a pencil and a piece of paper for the test, and you go, oh, that's today. And your heart sinks, <laughs> and you start to panic. This was a regular occurrence for me. I never knew the test was, I thought it was tomorrow. I, that's, I can't even tell you how many times, I, I thought it was tomorrow. Why is that, for most of us, such a gut-wrenchingly difficult imagine, thing to imagine? Does anybody here like tests? Why? Why on earth? They're fun. They're fun. Okay, so here's what I know about you. You're smart, and you do well on tests. <laughs> this is what I know. I, don't even, I can't even see who you are, but I know. I can see it. And that's true. The only tests that I enjoyed taking my entire educational career, if you can call it a career, more like a tragedy, like a, tra a, a what are they, a Shakespearean tragic comedy, were geometry tests. And here's why. I got hundreds on those tests. I was a solid B student in everything, everything else. B minus, to be honest. B minus. But geometry tests... I knew what I was doing. I remember sitting in class at times, and, and, the, and the smart people, whatever class it was, they'd get like a 94 or 95 or a 96 on their test, and they would be up at the teacher's desk arguing for another point or two to get that 97 or 98. And I remember thinking to myself, what is wrong with you? You have an A. I'm, I'm, if I'm arguing for points, I'm trying to get it up into that B minus range. What are you doing? And then I got a 97 on one of my geometry tests, and I was up at the, I was up at the desk. Because I was like, no, no, no. Normally, we're just afraid of tests, and here's why. Tests tell us the truth about ourselves. And generally... Generally, we don't want to know that unless you're smart. Tests scare us because they tell us the truth. Hold that thought. We're rolling into a study on the book of Mark. Go to the beginning of your New Testament, Matthew, Mark, second gospel. And I've been looking forward to this series for a long time. We got the idea of studying through this book maybe six months, seven months ago. 
We had been studying Romans too, uh, and we got camped on this verse in Romans chapter 5 that said, not only should you glorify God, but you should glory in your sufferings. And that's, a, that's a lot like saying you should glory in the test. You glory in your sufferings because suffering produces perseverance, which produces character, which gives you this unassailable hope in life. And as we were thinking about the book of Mark, which is every gospel is the story of Jesus. It's the narrative of, of this coming of God in the flesh to be uh, put in place as king. And as we look at the book of Mark, we see this verse in Romans playing out in Jesus' life. If you're under the delusion that Jesus, because he was God, had an easy life, it was simple for him to make the right choices, that he was able to avoid all the, the mud and the, and the difficulty and the struggles of life, we, we, we're mistaken. We can look at the life of Christ and understand more deeply how to do what Paul and called us to do in Romans 5, to lean into the struggle, to glory in it, to experience the Spirit of God showing up in ways that causes us to persevere. The struggle in life allows us the opportunity to prove that the Spirit of God is real because he enabled us to persevere, to be more mature, to, to have a hope we wouldn't otherwise have. I've been looking forward to this book of Mark because I don't want to I don't want to overstate this but I, in my lifetime I I can't remember a season within the society and the culture in which I live where it was more confusing, more uncertain, more divided more hopeless in a lot of ways. Some ways, I'm not even sure how to preach. Like, I've been, I've been restudying and reconsidering. How do, how do you preach? How do you, how do you draw application from the Scripture into what we are living in in today's world? How do I talk about critical issues in our culture without sounding divisive? Or, or it is, you understand, how do you engage in the idea of taking weeks, if not months, and just focusing on Jesus and following him is deeply, it brings a deeply peaceful feeling to me. Oh, I don't know. It's like, I don't know where to go. I don't know where to turn. I don't know what to determine. I don't know what to conclude. And I can just feel my soul saying, look, just Keep your eyes on Jesus and keep following him. Do what he does. Stay close to him. Now, that doesn't, I, I assume that doesn't mean at all that I'm going to be insulated or isolated from the world. The, the opposite. It will, if I'm following Jesus and listening to his voice, I will be engaged in society in the right way because I'm doing it Jesus' way. So to look at the life of Jesus in the, in the mindset of, God, tell us how to live. I'm, I'm excited to jump in, so I'm going to do what you're thinking. 
do it, Mike. <laughs> Get into it. At the very beginning of Mark, he starts like this. He says, this is the beginning of the good news about Jesus. Mark, is, if you, once you start reading, you think this guy is, not, is the kind of guy, when he's talking, you understand what he's saying. Here he is writing the book. He says, this is the beginning of the good news about Jesus. This is the beginning of it. But it's actually deeply meaningful because what we're going to quickly find ourselves is in that Jesus is in an epic struggle almost instantly. And Mark is saying, this is the beginning of the good news. We, we so deeply need the good news, that good news being the kingdom of God is at hand. That's the good news. It is here. He has brought it to us. It is here. The chaos of the world might cause you to think God is gone. He's not here. He is here. The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus is at work. His disciples, you and me and any who put their faith in him, can live as in the kingdom in this world. But the beginning, Mark is foreshadowing, is an epic struggle. He goes on and says, this message has been coming around for a long time. He says, here's what's written in the prophet Isaiah. I will send my messenger ahead of you, you being the Messiah that's been foreshadowed for millennia and generations. You will prepare a way for him. It'll be like a voice calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Mark reminds us, that this Jesus, this incarnate God, this God in the flesh, this kingdom having arrived has been foreshadowed for a long, long time. For them, hundreds of years, hundreds of years, multiple generations. He says, it's been foreshadowed. All the prophets of the Old Testament had a primary objective, and that was to anticipate and inspire the people of God to wait patiently to be obedient because the Messiah is coming. In a sense, they pointed to the Messiah, figuratively, of course. But Isaiah says there will be one that will come, and he will actually physically point to Jesus. John the Baptist was... In essence, the last Old Testament prophet, although we only hear about him in the New. Apart from things that suggest him like this. John the Baptist shows up. He understands his role is to point to the Son of God, which he does. And this is where Mark starts. Jesus being pointed out physically, actually, by a prophet, that is the Messiah right there. And you should follow him. John does what no, almost no leader ever does. Send me this news story if you can find it. The leader that says, hey, it's no longer about me. 
It's about someone else. John was making a name. He had followers. Have you ever had a follower? Have you ever had somebody that was following you, someone that trusted you, someone that looked up to you for answers, someone that, someone that honored you? That's better than gold, man. Someone that makes you feel like you should be leading and on top. John says, it's not about me, it's about him. You should follow him. And within a few sentences, within a few breaths of being identified as the Messiah, we come upon one of the most unusual, unique, and profound moments in the Bible. And I suppose you're familiar with the scene. The temptations of Jesus in the desert. And the struggle we glory in our struggles. And the struggle for Jesus begins. He is publicly identified. There's the Messiah. And is within, it seems, hours of that, the struggle commences in full force. At once, the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the Satan he was with the wild animals and angels attended to him. Matthew puts it this way. He was tempted by the devil. He was led by the spirit. He was sent. He was led. The gospels, for whatever reason, have been translating that word differently. But the word, more explicitly, could be, should be, translated, was driven into the wilderness. It's the same word Jesus is used to describe Jesus when he drove out demons from people. The same word. He drove them out. The Spirit drove Jesus to the wilderness. This is an intense, you got to get out there. This is the first thing. Go, 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 go. This guy, it starts here. It starts here. When did Jesus realize he was the Messiah, the Son of God? When did he, when did he realize that? In full force. I think even about my own faith. A Sunday school teacher led me to Christ when I was eight years old. In college, I went, oh, gee, I see what's going on here. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> what? <laughs> oh, this is what it looks like? Something dramatic happened right here. Jesus was walking along, and his cousin goes, there's the Messiah. What? What? Yeah, but what is that? This is a fully divine but fully human. Yes, and I got to drive you out here because this is critical. And we see this strange. He's alone. 
It's the only time in the Gospels that, we, that, we, that is recorded where Jesus wasn't with other people. He's alone, hungry, tired, physically, mentally, exhausted, in the desert, with wild animals. Wild animals who are also hungry. Right? He's surrounded by threat. He's alone. He's attended to by angels. And he's in this verbal battle. He's having a verbal battle with some figure, evil, the Satan, the devil, the accuser, this liar, this, this demeanor, this depressor, this pusher aside of the truther. This is who he's, uh, he's, he's faced with. I don't know how you feel about evil. But if I ask you to raise your hands, And tell me if you embrace it or not. It'd be like half and half. Trust me on this. It'd be half of you would be like, eh, it's kind of, oh, I don't really get it. It seems like kind of mythological. And others would say, this guy experiences it every day. It's, it's entirely real. Part of the reason we get kind of backwards on this whole thing is honestly um, because of art. This is the first and oldest image that we have of a depiction of Jesus in the desert. Have you ever seen anything like that dude on the left before? Horns, wings, fur or scales of some sort, claws, teeth. <laughs> what is that? That's like somewhere in the first, I'm no art person, somewhere in the first thousand years of post-Jesus. It's not even a painting, I don't think. At least the original one. That might be a replica. And like 500 to 1,000 years later, painting started to look like this. This is the art history space that is often referred to as like, uh, what, uh, realism. Instead of painting abstracts, people were painting what, what is actually real. Well, what catches your eye about this deal? That's a monk. This is the, this is the, the representation of evil. Look at his feet, though. This is how you know it's wicked. You look, at, you look at the artwork that covers the, the temptation in the wilderness in, the, in around 1500 and within that space, and you're going to see some kind of a actually good character where he is depicted as evil if you look closely. There's a mental shift that was going on. Evil in the Bible, we don't get that first picture from the Bible, by the way, that first one with the weird-looking, uh, I don't know, gothic-looking gargoyle or whatever he is. We don't get that from the Bible. In the Bible, 
Evil is not easy to spot. It's not some kind of grotesque like reality. It's a masked reality. And like the picture puts it, it could look actually like it's good. It could be coming to you in an enticing, seductive, tempting sort of a way, something that seems good, but it's bad. It's evil. Do we have a third picture or not? No. I can tell you what, the, that, another five or 100,000 years, the, the, what was represented as evil looked just like a person, just a, just a straight up person. Sometimes an angel with wings, always with wings. And a little side note, there are, there are no angels in the Bible with wings. There are winged creatures, but angels are depicted as being almost like human. Angels in the Bible were messengers, were oftentimes disguised as or misconstrued as people. They didn't have wings. Where do we get these pictures of gargoyles with wings and angels with wings? Not the Bible. It's mythology. It's, it's, it's Milton and Dante's Inferno. That's where we got those, the, that, that history, that literature got infused into Christian art. And now we think of evil like that gargoyle. But we should think of it as something not so definitively evil. Our imaginations are filled with images of angels and demons found nowhere in the Bible. We make these images in our own imagination, which should tell us some things. Number one, we're missing the point entirely. The point is what? There is evil. There is. The other thing we have to realize is part of the reason the modern mind can't grasp or rejects evil, the reason half of you would say, I'm not really sure it exists, is because you're thinking of that first picture which doesn't exist. It's silly. It's ridiculous. And you see something like that and you think, do you think evil exists? That would be, it's very similar for many people to say, do you think this depicts evil? Like, no, this is ridiculous. If that's what the Bible says evil is, I don't even believe in that. But it doesn't. But what's true is that reality is pervaded with some form of evil that is much deeper than just our own stupid ideas and our own sinfulness. It, it, it pervades humanity. It affected Jesus' surroundings. And what we see, Mark says, right here at the beginning, right at the beginning we see Jesus recognizing that his identity, his vocation, begins with, and we will see continues to be, dealing with evil. Straight on. If you don't, you're not following him. This is the first battle of Jesus' public ministry. It ended with people. 
It's with a pervasive evil that is difficult to describe, not even a good idea to try to depict it. It exists, and Jesus had to deal with it. Who is Jesus? Who, what is this, or who is this other figure? Because he's dealing with what seems to be somebody. And what is this battle? So we've already covered this. He's led by the Spirit into this. Okay, okay, now go back to that concept for a second. The Spirit of God led him into a battle with evil. Let that sink in for a minute. How many times have you been in a situation that is not only bad, but feels wicked or dark in some way, and you think, well, this is obviously not where God wants me? Obviously. No, actually not so obviously. The Spirit of God drove Jesus into this space, and you can see what's going on. If you don't believe that you should be there, if this isn't a God thing, and you're hungry, what are you going to do? Well, you're going to eat. When God doesn't want you to eat, but it only makes sense, and certainly God doesn't want me to be here, certainly God doesn't want me to be hungry. God doesn't want me to be alone. God doesn't want me to be surrounded by threats. Oh, yeah, actually, he does. Actually, he does. The Spirit of God actually, because it's pretty difficult to get you to go there, is driving you there. You got to get out there. Yes, but I'm, I'm praying right now. I'm praying. I'm praying about how to get rid of my circumstances. I'm praying for how to avoid this horrible thing that's coming. And the Spirit's like, yeah, you just need to go, man. You need to get out there. This is the beginning. The Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness for what reason? To be tempted. What's this story about? What is this story about? Back up. I skipped the verse. Sorry. I tricked you. I skipped the verse because I wanted to set this up a little bit for you. I didn't really trick you. I just went. Okay, so listen. One verse prior to that, Jesus is being baptized. He's pointed out. He goes into the Jordan, and he's being baptized. And the heavens open up, and the Spirit of God comes down. The Spirit of peace descends. The voice of God says, this is my Son, with whom I am well pleased this beautiful moment of affirmation and love and peace and connection. God from heaven declares the identity of Jesus, his love for him, seals it with the Spirit. What's going on here? The Spirit comes to Jesus with the Father's declaration of his identity as the Son of God. This is a, this is a huge moment. All of, all of Israel for generations and thousands of years have been waiting to, for the Messiah and the prophet has pointed to him and the spirit has come down upon him and the voice of God says, yes, that's him. I love him. This is my son. He is your Messiah. And the crowd goes crazy and the confetti flies and the fireworks go off. Here's our hero. This is the one. And then the spirit that was gentle and peaceful 
goes, let's go. Let's go right now. Right now, out into the wilderness. Let's go. To be tempted. In short, the word tempted is limited. Our, our, our capacity for an English word right here that means what it should, what means what it means. Tempted doesn't work because for us, temptation is only one-sided. It only means something negative. You're never tempted to do something good, right? You never say that. You're only ever tempted to do something you shouldn't do or to, or to do something that you, you're not doing like, or you should do or shouldn't do. It's like you're tempted Temptation has this idea that there's something out there that's pulling or pushing something in here. But a test. He was driven out into the wilderness to be tested. And this is a positive thing. Later, the religious leaders are also going to test him. The religious leaders did the same thing that evil does in the wilderness. And those religious leaders aren't actually trying to tempt Jesus to do something wrong. They're testing him. Do you remember what I suggested was the reason we don't like tests? It's because tests tell the truth about who we are. Jesus has just been emphatically declared the Son of God. And the Spirit says, let me take you out here and let you prove it to the world. Maybe let me prove it to you because as a human, <laughs> again, this whole scenario has just got to be mind-spinning. This is my son. This is the son of God whom I am well pleased. Get out into the desert. Listen, this is from Matthew. He goes into more detail. The tempter, which is true, came to him and said, If you are the son of God... And then the rest happens. Do you see? He is the son of God. And now he goes out into the desert to answer that question. Are you? Are you the son of God? Let's see. Let's see how you react. Let's see how you do in the test where I tempt you to be somebody other than the son of God. What's this story about? This is the nature of this narrative. It's not a story about the devil luring Jesus into his trap. This is a story about the Spirit of God leading him out there into the midst of this evil, into a test administered by some evil, wicked, accusational liar 
about what's true with the explicit purpose, with the explicit intention of revealing who he truly is. And when you look at Jesus' life, which we're going to do for the next, well, for the rest of our lives, that's what we're going to do, I hope, is to understand and see that Jesus' whole life was a test. His whole life. And here's what's awesome. 100%. He got 100 Teachers are like, sometimes there's bonus points. No, there's no, you, he got a 100%, 100, passed every single test, lived out of who he was in every single scenario. And some tests were excruciatingly hard, bleeding sweat in the garden. You are the savior of the world. You are the sacrificial lamb. That's what John said at the beginning, here's the lamb of the world. Now you're going to be sacrificed. This is your job. This is who you are. You're going to do it? Don't misunderstand. I said this before. I will, I will go on record with this. Jesus' life was hard for him. Excruciatingly hard. You think your life is hard trying to live out who you are? Trying to, tr try to try to live out a life where you must exemplify being the son of God. We see in Jesus' life a faith unexplainable from a human perspective. Unexplainable. This is our example it will never let up for him. And this is God's way. It's always been his way. Listen to some of the oldest scripture we have. This is Deuteronomy chapter 8. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness for these 40 years to humble and to test you in order to know what is in your heart. Whether or not you would keep his commands, he humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna to teach you that man doesn't live on bread alone. Your clothes didn't wear out, your feet didn't swell, Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord God disciplines you. The Lord is always leading his people into a terrifically difficult, oftentimes tragic experience for the intense purposes of revealing who you are. And for us, making us who we're supposed to be, it's both. Israel, 
failed miserably. <laughs> Jesus is restarting Israel's history, and this isn't lost on Mark. He is, he is shadowing this almost precisely, right? 40 years, 40 days, hungry, hungry, wild animals. Jesus is Israel's re- king. Now, he's not the replacement for Israel. He's actually now doing it as the, as the king, the one who will succeed where Israel failed. And he's not just restarting Israel's history. It's not just for the Jews. Can you think of another story where people were in a wilderness sort of a space and a tempter came and tried to deceive them about who they were? Yeah, Genesis, Adam and Eve, same thing. This is what evil does. This is the, 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 the contrast of God is this liar about who you are. And Jesus isn't just restarting Israel. He's restarting humanity. Jesus is saying, let me show you what it is to be human. Let me show you what it is to be a child of God by showing you what it is to be a son of God. Why do we even have this story? Where did the story come from? Every other story in the gospel comes from the people who saw it happen. They wrote about Jesus because they watched it happen. How do we have this story? Who gave it to us? It had to come from Jesus. At some point, he told the disciples this story and said, you need to memorize this. You need to memorize this. You need to memorize this experience that I had out here. Why? Because if you're going to follow me, you're going to have the same deal. Same deal, man. You're gonna, this is how, this is life. So then James writes, consider it pure joy when the trials of life come your way. We don't just glory in God, we glory in the struggles. Because why? This is God's way of proving who we are and developing who we're supposed to be. This is a story of a life that is led by the Spirit through the test that reveals who we really are. I had some other things that I can't find right now. Oh, here's. Maybe this is the best, I'll close with this. Maybe this is the best question to take into this series and for that matter, into everyday life. If God has led me into the battle and the reason is to reveal who I am in Christ, maybe this question is good to think about. How am I tempted to find my identity in some other way? What sorts of good, even godly things, do I do because when I do them, I feel good about myself? And about who I am. If God has led me into the battle, and the reason is to reveal who I am in Christ, in what spaces of life does the test reveal a sense of self that is rooted in something other than Jesus? If God's led me into the battle, and the reason to reveal who I am, what is it in this life, apart from Jesus, that gives me a sense of pride and well-being? 
What is your instinctive response to the question, who are you? When someone says, tell me about yourself. The answer to that question, the instinctive answer to that question, it should tell us something. We're in the midst of a battle, folks. The only way through this thing is to stay close to Jesus because he's already done it and he does it perfectly. And as we fail, we already have the grace of God that forgives us because that's part of who we are. We already have an eternal security made, locked, and ready by him. Stay with him through it. He's going to lead you into these spaces in order to reveal who you are or to make us who we are intended to be. That is our intention in the book of Mark. Follow Jesus in our real life in the middle of the test and know with greater depth and greater certainty who he is and who we are. Let's go do that. God, we thank you for your servants, Mark. We thank you for your son and the work that he did, the obedience of his life, the faith of his life, not only as our example, but our Savior, while we cannot do it. Thank you. God, thank you, Jesus, for trusting God 100%. Thank you for being the only one ever to trust God completely. Be our king, be our savior, be our leader, be the answer for us to who we are in these lives that are so chaotic. I'm praying in Jesus' name. All right, so those of you that were joining us online, thank you. Uh, so glad you could join us in some way, shape, or form.